You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Good afternoon. Welcome uh, to this talk today by Ambassador Ken Yalowitz. Uh, I'm Scott Radnitz, the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies. There are some flyers around with uh, upcoming events in the next couple months. So today, uh, it's actually not a talk. I'm going to be uh, asking the ambassador some questions, and then after a round of that, we'll open it up to the whole floor. So it's going to be informal, and there can be some give and take. So it's not going to be a, a conventional talk. Ambassador uh, Yalowitz served in the US Foreign Service for 36 years and was an ambassador twice to Belarus between 1994 and 97, and Georgia from 1998 to 2001. He also served in Moscow, the Hague, and the US mission to NATO in Brussels. He was chosen for the Ambassador Robert Frazier Award for Peacemaking and Conflict Prevention in 2000 for his work preventing spillover of the Chechen War into Georgia. Ambassador Yalowitz directed the Dickey Center for International Understanding at Dartmouth from 2003 to 2011. He's been an adjunct professor at Georgetown, Stanford, uh, and Washington and Lee University, uh, and was a diplomat in residence at American and George Mason universities. Now he is the uh, director of the master's program on conflict resolution at Georgetown University. So uh, please join me in welcoming uh, Ambassador Yalowitz. <laughs> so before uh, he came here, uh, Ambassador Yalowitz proposed a variety of themes that we could talk about, and they run the gamut from US-Russia relations to Russian domestic politics to Ukrainian domestic politics to uh, the future of the world as we know it. So there's a variety of things that we can talk about. Uh, just to start off, I want to take advantage of uh, your unique perspective as a lifelong diplomat and a person who's actually run an embassy in two very difficult and complicated countries uh, with the expectation that you might have a distinct view of things that are going on in the world now that other people might not have, having been on the inside in the trenches, so to speak. Uh, so just to start off, I wonder if you can maybe uh, shed some light on how you, as a former ambassador, or, or how a diplomat in general might view this uh, very dismal uh, downturn in, in relations between the US and Russia, or between the West and Russia, uh, in, a way, in a way that might give you a different perspective than other people. Very good. Scott, thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, this campus is exquisite. The weather is great. I'm not going to believe anybody anymore about the, uh, you know, the rain and the cloudiness in the Northwest. And uh, I'm very, very happy uh, to be here. Um, I served in Moscow uh, at the height of the Cold War uh, from 1995 to 7. We were in Moscow when the Soviet Union broke up uh, in 1991. I was then ambassador in Belarus, as you mentioned, a little bit later. And for me, in many ways, going to Belarus was like going back to the Soviet Union. It was, uh, we used to call it the living museum of the Soviet Union. Uh, and then Georgia was a very, very different uh, diplomatic experience. Uh, uh, I worked very closely with Edward Chevernadze, 
uh, who you know is a truly historic figure. And uh, the difficulty with Georgia was you know sort of not that it was uh, you know sort of a, a Soviet living museum. Uh, but it was a country that was trying to make its way in an extremely difficult, complicated neighborhood uh, with a neighbor to the north, you know, that was antagonistic and is still very antagonistic, uh, and really trying to make their own way. And um, if ever uh, one would have a job where, you know, being the U.S. ambassador was really always in the limelight, it was in Georgia, because Georgia, during my three years there, uh, was sort of lurching from one difficulty to another, whether they were power failures, um, indebtedness to Russia, uh, the uh, Second Chechen War, uh, when the Russians came back into Chechnya, almost led to uh, a Russian invasion of Georgia. And that was the kind of job where, literally, when we left after three years, I was physically exhausted because everything that would go wrong in that country, I would get a phone call from the president saying, Kenneth, please come and see me. Something you know serious is going on. So it was four very different experiences uh, in, you know, in the uh, former Soviet Union. And to answer your question, uh, we were in Moscow a year ago. Uh, my wife and I were asked uh, to lead a Smithsonian study tour on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. We had never done that on our previous two assignments, and we jumped at the opportunity. And we ended up in Moscow, uh, and we had dinner with the then new U.S. ambassador to Russia, who is a good friend of mine, uh, John Teft. And I asked him exactly that same question, you know, because the relationship was already very, very difficult, you know, a year ago. And I said, John, what are you going to try to do here? And he said, basically, what I'm trying to do here is to keep doors of communication open. Uh, that is the best we can do right now. Uh, uh, you know, the, we're not going to be able to, you know, to uh, overcome you know, uh, all the huge, you know, propaganda machine that Mr. Putin has unleashed about the United States. But what we can do is to try to keep some programs going, uh, for me to travel around, you know, to, uh, to show the flag and show people, you know, that we are still interested. And in many ways uh, that resonated with me because that was very similar to what I had in Belarus uh, when we were there from 1994 uh, to 1997. And you know that really is the, probably the most fundamental job of a diplomat is to keep doors, you know, lines of communication open. And I can tell you in Washington uh, today, uh, for those of us who are struggling to try to keep some lines of communication open, you know, with Russia. For me, uh, that we're going to be here at a conference tomorrow, I'll be talking about uh, the Arctic. And the Arctic uh, is one area where I do believe that it's possible that we can continue to cooperate uh, with the Russians. But it's difficult to make those arguments uh, in Washington uh, right now. Uh, if you know, you stand up and, and want to argue, you know, for, uh, you know, for doing this or that, uh, you can be on the defensive very, very clearly. And, and, you know, for good reasons. Obviously, the Russian record, you know, is not very good. But we as diplomats are always looking at the longer term. And when you look at the longer term with Russia, 
there is no doubt, you know, that we do have some common interests. Um, the fight against terrorism, although that's now been clouded uh, by what's going on, you know, in Syria in terms of who is a terrorist or not. Uh, but the question of uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons, a very critical problem where we are still, you know, cooperating with the Russians. People have lost sight of the fact that, you know, we did cooperate with the Russians on the Iran agreement. Uh, you know, the Iran agreement, you know, has been uh, admired, criticized, you know, a whole gamut of reactions to it. But it is a very substantial, you know, achievement. And the Russians, you know, did uh, play a positive role. So that is really what it's all about is I was in Moscow, you know, during the height of the Cold War. And even then, you know, we were looking for areas where we could possibly, you know, do things together. Uh, and, you know, knowing full well, you know, what the nature of the regime was, we had no, you know, uh, we weren't naive in any way, shape or form. But the whole idea was to try to keep, you know, lines of communication open. And I think that, you know, remains today probably the most important function. <clears throat> A couple weeks ago, when Putin was in the U.S. for the uh, U.N. conference, there was this debate, at least it was reported as a debate, about whether Obama should meet with Putin personally. The, the argument against it being that, this would, that meeting with him publicly would legitimize Putin's behavior at a time when you're trying to isolate Russia because uh, you want to punish its bad behavior. That simply meeting with, with Putin is a concession of sorts. What do you say to people who make that argument? Well, I don't agree. Um, I, um, you know, in the same, by the same token, those who've argued that, you know, resuming diplomatic relations with Cuba, you know, was a mistake, I don't agree. Uh, the Soviet Union fell for a number of reasons. Um, some like to believe, you know, that it was Ronald Reagan, Star Wars, partially, you know, maybe a small part of it. But it fell for a number of reasons, and one of which was that as you know, time went on, it was more difficult you know, to sort of keep this myth alive of, you know, the, the, uh, uh, you know, of Soviet ideology. You know, people were much better educated. They started to travel. There were more tourists going to Russia. And the sort of the vacuousness of Soviet ideology, I think, became more and more clear. And I think in large part that was due to communication. And I think with Cuba, uh, you know, by the same token, I think once that place is opened up, it's going to be very, very difficult uh, to maintain. And I think the same ultimately is going to happen, you know, with China. I'm not naive about the systems in any of these places, but I do think, you know, that time, you know, is ultimately on our side. And I don't believe that the idea of sitting down to talking with someone, you know, with whom we have grave differences, that that should be viewed as a, you know, as a signal, as a concession of weakness. To me, it's a sign of realism. As I said earlier, uh, there are issues that we need to talk about with the Russians. And frankly, with Syria, uh, it's much better. Now, we obviously have major disagreements with the Russians about Syria and, and about Ukraine, but I believe that if we had some vehicle to keep communications going, it would be much better off. We have, don't have the ability now to communicate. You know, uh, in years past in Russia, 
Um, you know, we had these various commissions that had bureaucrats from both sides talking. Those things were useful when the relationships get difficult because people are accustomed to talking with each other. It doesn't change the fact that each side has fundamental interests which they're going to, you know, which they're going to uh, uh, support and, and defend. But you don't demonize each other in quite the same way when you're, when, you know, when you're still talking to each other. And I felt the decision was correct uh, because we needed to talk about Syria. Uh, I suspect that they probably did talk a little bit about Ukraine. And I think it was important for our president to take you know, Putin's measure. Uh, you, I, we don't know whether we can believe anything that he says, obviously, as the record shows. But it's not a sign of weakness to me to sit down and confront the person and talk to him directly. Do you think there is any chance for the U.S. to influence Russia's behavior? That is, uh, the course of, of Russian policy is, is set for a variety of, of factors having to do with the nature of politics in the Kremlin, the nature of the Russian economy, whatever happens to be inside Putin's head on a given day. Uh, Russia is going to act based on what it perceives as its own interest. There are a lot of areas where, as you mentioned, the U.S. and Russia probably have interests that align. Uh, what could the U.S. do to get Russia more on board with things that the U.S. prioritizes in the world for which it would like Russia's cooperation? A very, very, very difficult, um, you know, task um, at this point. Um, I came up through the Foreign Service as an economic officer, and um, I happen to believe that one of the major reasons that the Soviet Union failed uh, was the economy, you know, of the Soviet Union. Uh, it was developed, you know, the forced draft industrialization under Stalin made the Soviet Union a mighty industrial power, but it was a major steel producer, chemicals, uh, warplanes, etc. And um, again, no secret, in the 70s and 80s, they had much, much greater difficulties, you know, in the computer age, uh, you know, with software, with science, uh, with getting the, um, the results uh, from their very brilliant scientists and laboratories into the production line, and that's where the system really began to collapse. Uh, they simply could not keep up any longer. They had the mines, but the, uh, but the system stultified and, and really prevented uh, things from going on. Uh, I'm one, uh, and I may be a minority in this, who believe you know, that, that Putin right now uh, is playing with a weak hand. I think he's playing rather brilliantly with a weak hand, but I do think he is playing uh, with a weak hand right now. Uh, the economy, not just because of sanctions, but the economy has some very, very, very serious problems to it. Uh, the price of oil has been a, a very severe body blow uh, to the Russian economy, uh, and they also export a lot of gas, and there now is a surplus of gas. Uh, the Russians were looking to China as a new market, you know, to uh, possibly replace gas markets in Western Europe. That is apparently not happening. Uh, I'm seeing all kinds of indications, you know, th there isn't foreign investment, you know, coming into uh, Moscow, you know, into Russia in any extent. There's a brain drain. Uh, the ruble, you know, is still, um, you know, not, not very strong. Uh, I think all of these things uh, are 
going to impact? You know, everyone says, well, the sanctions haven't had any impact yet, they've failed. My answer was, you know, the Soviet Union didn't fall overnight either. It, it was an accumulated period of time when all these various factors came together. And I do believe, you know, that uh, in the not too distant future that some of these things are going to be constraints uh, on Mr. Putin. Uh, what he's doing in uh, eastern Ukraine right now is a drain. Uh, they are in there now. They are stuck in a bit of a quagmire, and I don't think they know quite what to do with it. Uh, they've unleashed forces there that I'm not even sure the Kremlin uh, controls. And what they have done, you know, in Ukraine, if nothing else, is they have created an enemy state there uh, for the next hundred years, and that was not. Uh, I think what, you know, what they had in mind whatsoever. I think, you know, Putin thought uh, when they went into Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea that there would be a, this quote-unquote popular, you know, uprising elsewhere in eastern Ukraine. It has not happened, and I think they are, they are stuck. Uh, they've had to pull forces and materiel out of Ukraine, you know, and to send it to Syria, and I just don't know how much he can continue doing, you know, these kinds of things. I mean, sooner or later, uh, I think these constraints uh, are going uh, to happen. And I think that's why, I'm not trying to argue President Obama's brief, but I think that's why he has opted, you know, for sort of the, the longer term, you know, strategy in dealing, you know, with Russia and not reacting, you know, to every single uh, step. Uh, and as I say, I think that that is probably, you know, the way to do things now, you know, is to be very firm in our principles, um, to be very firm in getting our own act in order. And I, I, I'm just going to parenthetically say here, in my 35 years as a diplomat, if there's one thing that I learned about how U.S. influences people overseas, it's the quality of our system, it's the quality of our leaders, it's the quality of our ideas, uh, not military force. And I think we've, you know, we've moved away a little bit from that. And as I say, I think, you know, if we can go back to emphasizing, you know, basics, uh, this will be very important. Again, to sum up, I think over the long term, our situation is better. And I do think that Mr. Putin is going to have to deal with uh, realities. So then to, to link this to current events, uh, you would consider what Russia is doing in Syria now more of a blunder than a brilliant strategic move. Yes. Um, I, I do think that uh, it was very interesting when, when we were in uh, the Soviet Union in the 70s, we always remarked about the fact that the Soviets seemed to um, mimic or follow many things. Excuse me, I forgot to turn this off. Um, that the Soviet Union, um, you know, seemed to mimic uh, certain things that we did. And just as we had Vietnam, they went into Afghanistan and made the same types of mistakes uh, that we made there. And I think there is a potential, you know, that for them, uh, Syria could end up, you know, being somewhat like, uh, you know, like Iraq and Afghanistan have been. Um, what they did in Syria, um, I think, you know, in terms of realist politics, I think was probably, you know, very explainable. Uh, Assad is, you know, their major, probably only real ally in that part of the world. They have a naval base there. 
Uh, he clearly was on the verge of, of being ousted. And I think they felt that, you know, that they had no choice, you know, but, uh, you know, but to go in and help him. Where Putin was clever, uh, was disguising again, you know, the exact aim, you know, by saying we're going in to fight ISIS. But in fact, uh, what they're really doing is fighting, you know, the rebels who are, who are opposing uh, Assad. Uh, I was saying before, uh, I think I was talking to Michael, uh, that I, I, I inevitably at some point in the not too distant future, there's going to be a Russian embassy blown up somewhere uh, by terrorists or there are going to be terrorist attacks in Moscow. Um, I don't know if this is going to feed uh, the Muslim insurgency in the North Caucasus you know, within Russia, which is clearly a problem for them. Uh, uh, I was with a, a Russian scholar yesterday who was saying that the North Caucasus within Russia, the Muslim areas, are relatively quiet right now because all the young guys who want to fight are all in Syria fighting. But sooner or later, those guys are going to come back, uh, and others may say, well, we have, we have an enemy here now, you know, with Russia. So, yes, I think I understand, you know, why he did it, but that doesn't mean that I don't think that it's going to end up being a blunder uh, over time. So what is uh, a diplomat to do in, in this kind of situation in which uh, there's a country you're not on great terms with at the moment, but you see it doing something which looks pretty self-destructive, but it's also kind of getting in the way of your plan, to the extent that we really had a plan in Syria. Uh, so the, the word of the day is deconfliction, yep. right? At the very least, we want to avoid yep. accidentally uh, colliding with, with a, a Russian fighter jet. Right. Uh, how do, so how do you go about doing that in a case where Russia um, seems to be right, going, doing things its own way and going out of its way to be provocative, seems to be provoking games of chicken, mm -hmm. in order to make some kind of statement, uh, how do you go about resolving issues uh, to do things that are in both sides' best interest if the other side uh, simply wants, wants to be provocative? Okay, well, I think the first thing, you know, again, as a diplomat, what you would want to do is deal with the most immediate threat, and that's the deconfliction, uh, you know, that, that you mentioned. Um, I think we're supposed to have a third round of talks um, you know, with, uh, with the Russians. Um, I'll be honest with you here. I supported um, supplying defensive weapons to Ukraine for exactly the reason, you know, that, that you have described. Um, I know the reasons why the Obama administration did not want to do that. They did not want to get into uh, a direct or indirect war with Russia. Uh, and I think probably correctly estimated that you know, for the Russians, Ukraine was far, far higher up on their priority list than it is for us, and that it would be very difficult, you know, to match their commitment, uh, you know, in Ukraine. This was not a, you know, an intense direct national interest of the United States where it is, you know, for, you know, for uh, the Russians. Uh, and in the case of Syria, uh, I can see where we may be headed towards uh, a proxy war or at least on a limited basis, because I do believe, uh, as I said, with Ukraine and also with Syria, uh, that you've got to try to uh, warn off the Russians, you know, that they do not have, you know, an exclusive, an exclusive sort of, uh, you know, territory on the playing field. Uh, as I said, I would have supported uh, defensive arms going to Ukraine for that reason. 
But even Ukraine, what's very, very interesting is uh, I hope people have not lost sight of the fact that that has quieted. And it's quieted, I think, for a number of reasons. One, as I already indicated, uh, I think Putin's grand ambitions, you know, for Ukraine have not been realized. And I think he's now, you know, in a, in a, a real quagmire there. But the Ukrainian army has actually done better, I think, than anybody expected. Uh, in the course of a year, uh, they have conscript, uh, you know, conscript, conscripted troops. They have armed them. Uh, I think they're getting weapons from a variety of different places. And they have demonstrated, I think, to the Russians that if they come in more, it will be a very bloody mess. And I mentioned earlier when I was on the Trans-Siberian, uh, I had a chance to talk to Russians all across uh, Siberia. And it was very, very interesting, the mindset. This was a year ago. Everybody supported the annexation of Crimea. Extremely popular. You know, this was simply uh, redoing or correcting a, an historical injustice. But nobody that I talked to wanted to see a war with Ukraine. Uh, there was, simply was no stomach for that. And I think, you know, Putin, you know, is, uh, you know, is, is aware of that. And I do think, you know, that he's, he's in a situation now where, you know, he's, he is a bit stuck. And I think that is probably, you know, what is, you know, what is uh, going to, you know, what is going to happen, you know, in, in Syria. So again, as I say, it's, it's a combination of things. I think we have a stronger hand to play, but I think also we have to help decide that they're not helping. Um, you know, uh, we, we obviously are going to now start uh, supplying more equipment to uh, Kurds. Uh, we're going to be supplying more equipment. Uh, we've given up on this idea of training, you know, uh, 5,000, you know, rebel forces in Syria, but it doesn't mean we're ceding the playing field to him. So on the issue, uh of potentially arming Ukraine, I'm actually a little bit surprised to hear you advocate that policy, uh, and I wonder how you square that with what you talked about before, that a diplomat's main role is to try to keep doors open. Aside from, so there, Russia might have more than one reason for res responding to the arming of, of the Ukrainian army. Uh, one would be just that it would, they wouldn't want to lose position, right? It wants to maintain whatever foothold it had in mm -hmm. Eastern Ukraine back, but the very fact that the U.S. is arming the Ukrainians might be sufficient for Russia to feel like it, it has to, to push back, to, to show that um, it's not being pushed around. Well, we're talking about diplomacy here, and I emphasized uh, communication, you know, as critical uh, to diplomacy, but diplomacy involves, you know, the use of a whole series of, of uh, arrows in your quiver. And um, one of them, of course, is um, ultimately, you know, you go to war, which I'm not advocating, you know, with Ukraine. But there, I believe, are times when, you know, when a more forceful message has to be projected. Uh, and Mr. Putin, I believe, uh, let me just back up for a second. Uh, Putin has been projecting an image of the United States and the West for the last several years as decadent, um, as, you know, our economic system, you know, falling apart, uh, as very weak. Uh, they have projected themselves as the defenders of traditional values uh, on sexual issues, uh, on religious issues, and that's actually having, you know, some impact uh, in, in, in more traditional uh, parts of the world. 
But, uh, you know, he has uh, uh, thumbed his nose at the European Union. He has thumbed his nose at, uh, you know, sort of a, um, a democratic, liberal, uh, you know, alternative. He's pushed, um, you know, his own, uh, you know, uh, idea system. Uh, and he's really pushed, uh, you know, this great Russian nationalism very, very, very strong. And as I said, you know, I think that, you know, to sort of break that spell, and this is a question I hope, you know, that you guys are studying here because it's one that vexes me uh, tremendously, uh, is why after, you know, 20 years of after the Soviet Union, uh, Mr. Putin has had such a relatively easy time of sort of uh, reinstituting Soviet-style propaganda and, you know, turning people's minds, you know, in a certain way. I mean, it is very, very, very worrisome to me, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that the mindset and the method of operation there is something that would be very familiar to me from the Cold War years. Um, so, I mean, that, you know, that is, you know, as I say, that I do believe that, you know, in diplomacy, there are times that you have to use these other uh, more forceful tools, you know, to, to make a message and pierce, um, you know, what he has been saying and doing. Um, so that was the context in which, and again, all I'm talking about would be defensive weapons, uh, not, you know, I'm talking about anti-aircraft, uh, you know, kinds of things, uh, radars, things that would have helped, you know, the, uh, the Ukrainians to deal with the, um, you know, the air dominance that, um, you know, that, uh, you know, that they were giving to, uh, you know, to the rebels. So again, as I say, I'm just talking about uh, uh, using a broader range of diplomatic tools. You talk and be a little forceful at the same time. This is good diplomacy. Uh, this is something we do all the time. I wonder if uh, maybe in hindsight, uh, to the extent that we can say there's been some sort of change on the battlefront, uh, that things seem to have calmed down uh, since the negotiation of Minsk II. And the Ukrainian army, as you mentioned, is getting stronger. In hindsight, was it maybe good that we didn't arm the Ukrainian uh, military? Because that might have had unintended effects, right? That, that might have made things worse. And as I recall, one of the arguments at the time was that Russia is going to keep on pushing and you need to arm Ukraine in order to prevent them from grabbing even more territory and pushing, for example, all the way to Odessa. Well, I would counter that simply by saying, had we provided defensive arms, it might have been a shorter period for the Ukrainian army to be able to uh, do what they're doing now. So I don't know. I mean, these are, you know, imponderables. Um, but I'm just trying to lay out, you know, as best I can, you know, the thought process, you know, that, uh, that, that a number of us have gone through. Uh, and that is, you've got to keep lines of communication open as a, and at the top levels, but at the same time, you know, if, if part of that communication is, is reminding Putin, you know, that we are not weak, we are not, you know, a declining power, you know, that we have interests and that we're going to project those interests as well, uh, that's not a bad thing to me. So on the topic of communication, uh, because now there are so many possibilities for, uh, very dire, dire circumstances in which U.S. And, and Russian forces could come into contact. Uh, it could end up in, in really tragic ways. Are there lines of communication now through official or unofficial channels that would allow the resolution of, of a crisis? If we pick up the phone and call, will somebody with any power pick up the other end? 
It's a very, very good question. When I was in Moscow in the 70s, um, one of my jobs was uh, the hotline. Um, I was uh, in the economic section of the embassy and I was responsible for uh, communications cooperation. And of course it was a military you know, uh, operation, but I was involved with it and I thought that was a pretty, you know, pretty good thing. Uh, you know, to have that hotline. Uh, if we have anything like that now, it would be the communications between the Secretary of State and the Soviet Russian Foreign Minister. Uh, they are in regular contact, uh, but it's not enough. Um, uh, our military-to-military -military contact, I think, has pretty well uh, withered away because of, of Ukraine. Uh, I think they're trying to, at least in this situation in Syria now, at least get some, you know, uh, a working level communication going so that we don't have uh, the type of tragedy that, uh, that you have uh, outlined. And that is a risk. There is absolutely no doubt about it. Um, uh, you know, we've had a lot of close calls. You talked before about uh, uh, very uh, irresponsible Russian behavior with overflights and, you know, jets. Uh, they're doing a lot of things that are just sort of um, I won't name who it was that said it, but a very prominent journalist, I was on a panel with her uh, at the uh, Smithsonian, and we were talking about Putin, and she said that she had interviewed him, and I'm not subscribing necessarily to this viewpoint, I'm just talking about what she said. She said, you know, she said, I'm tired of these little men with Napoleonic complexes you know, who are always flexing their muscles, you know, and, and she was referring to what was then going on, these overflights, et cetera. Uh, and there is an element of bravado, you know, in, in what they're doing. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to demonstrate that they're back and that they have to be taken seriously. And the one way they can do that, they can't do it economically, they can't do it diplomatically. I mean, they're losing their soft power advantages. You know, Joe Nye's you know, works on soft power. Uh, they have a tremendous advantage with the Russian language in the former Soviet Union that they're not taking advantage of. The only vehicle that they're really using is military might. And as I say, it's a very risky game, you know, that, that they're doing. Uh, one would hope, um, you know, as I said, that through communication, you know, we might be able to get them, you know, to, to back down a little bit. But you also have to do the other thing that I said. You've got to show that militarily, uh, you know that we can we can we can stand up and, and not be bamboozled very important as to what's going on right now <clears throat> so aside from uh, this channel through uh, foreign secretaries uh, are there as far as you know or are there rumors that there may be pragmatists somewhere around the Kremlin who may have some way to get access to Putin himself people right that are a calming influence on what otherwise right, seems to be uh, Every, an, an escalating motion. Yeah. Everything that I hear is that um, you know, he is surrounded by a small coterie of loyalists uh, who basically tell him what he wants to hear. This is a real problem. I don't know that as a fact, but I keep hearing this over and over and over again, you know, that the Kremlin is increasingly a closed shop uh, and that people are, you know, from outside are not able to influence, um, you know, what, what is going on. Yes, there are uh, efforts. Um, uh, the Dartmouth, um, uh, I forgot what it's called, the Dartmouth Conversations, but they go on. This is something that's go on. The, the, the Kennan 
the, the Carnegie. Uh, everybody is trying to keep doors open. Uh, we keep talking, you know, intellectuals, uh, think tankers. But the real question is, I don't know how much we're actually getting, uh, you know, to the, to the very top people. Uh, and the, you know, I mean, that's one of the counters even to the own argument that, my own argument that people come back at me and say, well, you know, you're, you know, you're arguing that Putin, you know, may be weakened over time, but he simply may become more dangerous because he's so isolated and he's only hearing, you know, the, these, uh, I forgot which of his uh, acolytes, you know, basically said, you know, Putin is Russia and Russia is Putin. You know, there's no Russia without Putin. That is very bad when that starts going, you know, to people's heads. I mean, they, they, they really, uh, you know, that puts them in not a very, very good place and it makes them risk takers. And as I, that's what worries me right now. So it's hard not to draw some sort of analogy with the Cold War, mm -hmm. but it seems to me the most apt comparison would be the early years. 45, 46, 47, when both sides were still trying to figure each other out and they hadn't yet settled into any sort of equilibrium. Are we in that time now where we're just waiting to see how things are going to end up? Clearly, relations between the US and Russia will be on a, a different footing. It's very hard to imagine going back to how they were a decade ago or more. Are we just waiting to see how things settle down and maybe both sides will eventually learn the new rules of the game? Or is it inevitably going to keep on getting worse until, until what? Uh, it's, a, again, a very, very, very good question. Um, what the Russians did uh, with Ukraine, Ukraine is a complicated issue. You know, there, there are Russian-Ukrainian issues to it. Uh, there are issues related to European security, and there are issues that are really intrinsic to Ukraine itself, you know, the East and West. Uh, you know, the more Russian-oriented part of the country versus the more Western-oriented. Um, and the, the, you know, the thing that, you know, that, that I think differentiates um, the current situation from the period you mentioned is the Soviet Union, you know, is dead. Uh, the ideology is dead. Uh, the notion of an inevitable conflict, you know, between the West and um, the Soviet Union, I think, is, is largely uh, dead. Uh, Russia, uh, to me, and when Obama said this, uh, it was taken as an insult to the Russians, but I think it probably is correct. Russia is a regional power. It has nuclear weapons, which obviously we have to take cognizance of, but, you know, and it's now kind of trying to project itself back into the Middle East, but it is not a world superpower. Uh, you know, the way it was, uh, you know, after, you know, uh, you know, d during, you know, during the, uh, during the Soviet period. So I, I, I'm not sure, you know, that I, I, I could quite go along with the, you know, that comparison of, of 1945, you know, to 47. I think we have a better understanding, you know, of, of um, you know, what Russia is today than we did uh, then. Uh, George Kennan had a pretty good understanding, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure you know we, we did at the time. Um, and I, I just think though that we're we're in a, a period where, to me, the most important thing we're going to have to do with Russia over the near term is to try to again to agree on rules of the game for security in Europe. Uh, that is what has been broken, you know, in Ukraine. Uh, the, the rules of the game that were established pretty much by our side after the end of the Cold War 
uh, but the Russians signed on to those voluntarily. The Budapest Memorandum of 1994, uh, in which Russia, the United States, the UK, Ukraine, uh, and Great Britain all agreed you know, that uh, they were going to respect uh, Ukraine's borders, that there weren't going to be armed attacks, uh, that they were going to respect you know, Ukraine's t uh, sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence. And it was on that basis that Ukraine, you know, gave up the last of the nuclear weapons that came back uh, to Russia. And that really was sort of the, the glue that held together the whole post-Cold War security structure, you know, in Europe. The idea that we weren't going to be fighting over borders anymore. Uh, that, you know, that, uh, you know, that we were going to, you know, sort of take care of any disputes by negotiations. Uh, and that we were going to all live and live and respect each other's borders. That was all uh, torn apart. The Russians already did the first step in 2008, uh, you know, in Georgia. Uh, but Ukraine, I thought, was a you know, far more serious, uh, you know, step, you know, in that direction. And that, to me now, combined with what do you believe about what Mr. Putin has to say? You know, I mean, it's very, very hard uh, to see any situation now where what he has said has actually been correct. Um, certainly not correct in Ukraine and certainly in Syria. Uh, they've obfuscated again what I think was their major motive, you know, to prop up Assad. How we're going to reestablish rules of the game is a real, real tough question to me. It's going to be up to the next president of the United States uh, to do that. Um, and I, as I said, it is going to mean inevitably, though, communication of some type. We're going to have to get back to talking with them and to try to figure out what, if anything, you know, we can agree upon. Uh, I, I would rather talk to them at the top level than have them communicate via overflights and, you know, and, and you know, uh, you know, dinging things at our, our aircraft, et cetera. Uh, I think. Um, again, I'm, this is overly simplistic, but I think in a certain way you're dealing with a temper tantrum here. Uh, this is a country that feels that they were dissed by the West, you know, for 20 years, um, that we took advantage of them in their weakness, that we expanded NATO. I mean, all the whole list of arguments that they make, Kosovo, uh, all the areas, Libya, where we just overrode their interest. Uh, this is an accumulation of anger, you know, that's built up for years and years and years. And Putin very carefully, you know, uh, reformed the military, brought himself a lot of toys. And what he is doing, I'm being very simplistic now, but basically is sending a reminder, we're back. And the we're back is militarily, and we're here, and you better take care of us. You, know, you better take care and take cognizance of us, because you cannot push us around, you know, anymore. Uh, that essentially is what's going on, and, and to get out of that paradigm to me is the real challenge. It's going to take time, it's going to take communication, and it's going to be our uh, showing that we will also stand up if we have to. So you raised uh, one issue which I was planning to bring up, and uh, this is an issue which if you were to watch CNN, which nobody does anywhere, but if you were, you would think is the most important issue going on in the world, and that is the presidential election. Yes. Without having to reveal your own preferences, um, what will, how much will it make a difference whether we have President Clinton, President Christie, President Trump, President Cruz? I could go on. 
uh, and you could, you could devise a variety of scenarios. Um, you're in DC, and people talk about this kind of stuff. So what's the sense? And what's the sense in the, in the diplomatic community in particular? Another very, very good question. Um, the, it, it's been interesting because uh, on foreign policy issues, the Republican debates have really not, you know, they, they've touched a bit on Russia. Um, and uh, I don't think it came up all that much, you know, the other, the other day. I can tell you, though, that over the years, it's been very, very interesting. The Soviets preferred Republican administrations uh, over the years. And they did that because they felt that the Republicans were tougher but clearer, you know, in terms of uh, what they were doing, um, you know, with, uh, you know with, with the Soviet Union, that they were more formidable. Uh, I think that, you know, that changed. Uh, and, I, and I would have to say that right now, um, if I had to guess, uh, Putin does not like, you know, Secret uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, uh, amongst other things that uh, Putin has blamed us for, uh, if you recall, when he came back into office in 2012, there were mass demonstrations, you know, in Moscow. And Putin has a very strong allergy to what we call the color revolutions. Uh, you know, the orange revolution in Ukraine, the rose revolution, you know, in Georgia. Uh, you know, he has uh, very, very, very uh, bad uh, ideas about these things. And again, going into Putin's mindset, if you haven't read uh, uh, Fiona Hill's book on, you know, on Putin, it's, it's very, very good to see all the different elements that make him up. And one of the key things, of course, is this guy is a KGB, you know, came through the KGB. And the KGB, you know, basically, you know, uh, is not very comfortable with popular uprisings. Uh, you know, basically, you know, a uh, popular uprising to the KGB is when you manufacture. You know, this is what they did in Eastern Europe uh, after World War II. And the idea of spontaneous, you know, popular uprisings, I mean, can't be. It's some, something, somebody's got to be behind it. And, you know, of course, who's behind it? The CIA. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, when these demonstrations happened in, in Russia, they were very large in 2012, if I recall correctly. Uh, and Putin was taken by surprise, you know, because uh, here he would just, you know, they, uh, Medvedev handed power back off to him. And he thought, you know, great, I'm just going to go back and do everything that I did before, you know, continue dividing the spoils up amongst all my buddies and things are not going to change. And things had changed. And, you know, there was an awful lot of popular resentment about uh, corruption and also the way in which this uh, power, you know, transfer uh, happened. So what did he do? He started blaming the West. And the, who did he blame? Then, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, saying that she was the one that uh, you know, fomented this, that the CIA were, were the operatives. But uh, she was um, you know, behind it all. My guess is that they would probably regard her as a very formidable um, you know, uh, a person you know, to deal with. But they don't know anything about any of the Republicans. Uh, Donald Trump, I'm sure, is probably as much a mystery to them, you know, as you know. I'm sure they in, my, in the embassy, and they're trying to figure out, you know, who Donald Trump is and everything else. Um, uh, Bush, you know, maybe. But my guess is that right now, uh, they probably uh, think that it's going to be Hillary Clinton, 
and that she will be a, a formidable uh, person, you know, to deal with. That that she will be uh, someone, you know, that uh, that they can probably talk with, but that she's going to be formidable. Would be, I'm saying, I'm guessing, uh, but I'm sure that the Russian embassy is spending a lot of time right now doing research on, you know, uh, Ben Carson and, uh, you know, all these people that they have never, ever heard of before and trying to figure out if they have any viewpoints, uh, what's, you know, whatsoever. What about the people uh, that you talk to on the U.S. side, uh, in the diplomatic circles, uh, do they have uh, a preference? Well, Hillary is a former Secretary of State, <laughs> so... Um, no, I, that, that's one thing that I really would love to address here. Um, the Foreign Service, you know, we take an oath of loyalty to the President of the United States, you know, not in the Constitution, you know, not to a political party uh, and not to, you know, any, uh, you know, single political leader. And there are many people, uh, I, you know, if we, if we want to get into this a little bit right now, the Foreign Service has fallen a bit on hard times right now because uh, it's been heavily politicized at the top in Washington. Um, the number of, of political appointee ambassadors is probably the highest it's been in, in recent memory. Uh, and it's not just political appointee ambassadors. Um, the number of political appointees who are uh, undersecretaries of state, assistant secretaries of state, deputy secretaries of state is the highest that I can ever remember. Uh, and, you know, you've got a, 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 a situation now where being a professional diplomat, uh, you don't have the same type of career aspirations that you might have had when I was younger. Because when I was younger, we aspired to you know, these jobs. It was possible. Uh, Larry Eagleburger was a Foreign Service officer who became Secretary of State. Tom Pickering, the best diplomat of my time, you know, had 10 ambassadorships and ended up as the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. And we had some brilliant people, you know, diplomats did terrific stuff. And now it's getting much harder for young Foreign Service officers not only to aspire to these positions, but to have mentors who can help them because the mentors are political appointees. They're not professional, uh, they're not professional diplomats. And you know, that is one of the problems you know, right now that, that we are, you know, as a foreign service, you know, having difficulties. And this is not really appreciated, unfortunately. I'm probably talking to the choir here, and I'm sure you all understand and appreciate uh, the importance of having a very solid, strong, professional diplomatic service. Um, we, you know, as diplomats, uh, deal with some very, very difficult issues, and I've tried to lay out here, you know, that co communicating is part of it, but also, you know, the use of force or elements of force is also part of, of you know, of diplomacy. Along with soft power, you have a whole kit bag of tools, you know, that you use, uh, you know, as, as a diplomat. But the training of a diplomat uh, as a professional, this involves time and training. You know, you've got to study languages, you've got to serve overseas. And the idea that people who have been bundlers, you know, for uh, political campaigns or give $2 million to a candidate and end up, you know, with an embassy uh, is, is not correct. I mean, it's not a good thing. I've been very fortunate. Uh, I worked for some wonderful, wonderful political appointee ambassadors, uh, including Bob Strauss in Moscow. Uh, I don't know if any of you have, do any of you know the name Bob Strauss? Yep. Uh, an amazing person, uh, Mr. Democrat. 
you know, uh, uh, was head of the Democratic National Party, uh, was the uh, U.S. trade representative, and the uh, George Bush I, the elder George Bush, picked Strauss to be the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union. Incredible. Mr. Republican picked Mr. Democrat, you know, to be, he ended up the last ambassador to the Soviet Union. But he was a brilliant choice because he understood politics. And I was with him, you know, I saw what he did with, uh, with uh, Gorbachev when Gorbachev was still in power, and I saw what he did with Yeltsin. He understood politics, and he was able, you know, to deal and to talk to these guys in a way that, you know, that they could. That's why I say I think that that's probably why the uh, Putin would probably prefer Hillary Clinton right now because she's been there at the pinnacle of power, and you, he knows that he can talk with her. But Strauss was a political ambassador, and he was superb. We loved working for him. But there have been other political appointee ambassadors, frankly, who are an embarrassment. Uh, I mean, I won't go into some of the, the stories, but they're an embarrassment, you know, to, to the profession. And you simply can't come in. I'm going to tell one story right now, which I think kind of summarizes it. Um, first time we were in Moscow, uh, the second ambassador we had was a gentleman by the name of Malcolm Toon, who was a very tough anti-Soviet guy. He had come to the Soviet Union from Israel, where he had been our ambassador. And uh, he once told me this story, which I thought just summarizes everything beautifully. When he was ambassador in Israel, uh, there was a port visit, port of Haifa, of you know some major U.S. ship, maybe an aircraft carrier. And I had the same thing every time that there was a ship visit uh, in the Black Sea port in Georgia. I always go down to uh, Poti and greet you know the uh, captain or admiral, whoever it was. It was you know, a protocol, but it was great fun. But anyway, um, uh, Malcolm Ambassador Toon told the story that when he went to uh, meet the uh, admiral, you know, who was, you know, commanding this uh, uh, team, uh, he went, was, you know, escorted on board, you know, went up to the bridge where the admiral greeted him and they started talking. And they realized that they were roughly the same age. And uh, they started talking about their experiences and what they had done. And Ambassador Toon asked uh, the Admiral, you know, Admiral, you know, you're going to retire fairly soon. Have you been thinking about retirement? And what would you like to do, you know, after you retire? So uh, the Admiral said, well, I've been thinking about that. And he said, I would really like to be an ambassador. He said, you know, I've, you know, with the Navy, I've been all over the world. I've met all kinds of heads of state. And I think that would be a very interesting second career. And the Admiral then turned to Ambassador Toon and he said, Ambassador, what would you like to do in your retirement? And Ambassador Toon said, I'd like to drive this ship. <laughs> and the Admiral said, well, what qualifications do you have to drive this ship? And, and the Ambassador said, and what qualifications do you have to be an ambassador? So I, I, I love that story because I think that summarizes you know, it beautifully. Um, we do need a professional foreign service, um, and I hope, you know, that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, if she is elected, uh, you know, will do, will do that. The best Secretary of State that we've had in recent memories who really cared about the foreign service was Colin Powell. And Colin Powell, uh, from meeting him, I was always impressed with him. He always, I remember my flag ceremony, the retirement ceremony, what they said, 
um, was they commended me, you know, wonderful career, you did all these wonderful things, but the thing that we really want to point out is that you took care of your people, you mentored them, you worked with your junior officers, and what they were saying was, this is what's important to us, you know, is how you take care of your people. It was the general telling his officers, you take care of the men in the field, because if you don't, you're not going to have a very good army. And he was very concerned about, uh, he was the one that helped uh, restore some of the budget cuts. We were getting decimated uh, with cuts to our budget. We weren't bringing in enough young people. And that's why we don't have the mentors now, because those people would now be in the middle to lower high ranks and we're just not, we don't have them. So as I said, I, uh, this is just an appeal, you know, to at least understand that we need a professional diplomatic corps. And the most interesting aspect of this, Bob Gates, when he was Secretary of Defense, there was no more vocal and energetic supporter of the State Department and diplomacy than Bob Gates, because he kept saying, the military is getting stretched thin. We are being asked to do things that we are not trained to do that are not our jobs, they're the State Department's jobs. You know, peacekeeping, uh, peace resolution, we should not be doing these things. It should be the State Department, and the State Department needs the budget and the personnel, you know, to do it. So, enough of commercial for me. <laughs> well, this is a good time then to, to open uh, the floor to questions. There's a lot of things to discuss. Uh, you can call on people, it's probably easier please. that way. So, and please, uh, if you could just tell me your names, particularly students, I'd love to hear from students. Yeah, great, please. I just have a are, you, are you a student? No, I'm okay. not. That's okay. I'll still take the question. <laughs> but anyway, um, I have a question concerning the multipolar versus this uh, kind of sole superpower. Yes. Because um, to me, it seems that both uh, Putin or Putin in a number of cases offered that kind of approach, whether it be the, the BRICS dynamic, whether it be the work that they're doing with China around the Economic Union, the Silk Road. They've actually made proposals. Uh, Vladimir Yakutin, the former CEO of the Russian Railways, made proposals for the Bering Strait Tunnel to work with the United States. Um, but then you sort of, they, they see the sort of the target list of people like the, the Project for New American Century crowd, which one could say, well, that's just been you know, loose. It doesn't even exist anymore. However, a lot of the neocons were instrumental in carrying out the late nations that they had on that list, whether it was Iraq, Iran, Syria, uh, uh, Libya, these were all. So if you're Russia and you're sitting there saying, uh, we want to work with other nations, yet the Project for New American Century crowd said there shouldn't be a multipolar world. It should be the sole superpower of the United States. And then you look at the nations that they've run regime change operations on and line your border with ballistic missile defense systems and so forth. I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, could you see their point of view, but also what about the United States actually taking up the offer around these projects or around Xi Jinping's offer around the AIID and the Silk Road Fund? They've made these proposals and you keep rejecting them. So I don't yeah, you're a good, you know, very good, you know, very good arguments. Um, the first thing I would say is I think the age of the U.S. as the sole superpower is gone, and I think that's recognized, you know, pretty broadly. Uh, if you've looked at, um, you know, speeches that President Obama, you know, has given, uh, you know, he may not have, he won't say it exactly that way, 
But, you know, uh, even from when he first came into office, he has given a much higher priority.